morning, Asher will be, be uh, bringing the sermon from the book of Daniel chapter 5, and I'll be reading a portion of that chapter, verses 16 to 23. Would you stand as we read the word of the Lord together? The king speaking to Daniel said, But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretations, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretations. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kinship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them." And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron and wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. This is the word of the Lord. Well, imagine going to the biggest party of the century, where the festivities are cut short, because of supernatural handwriting on a wall, and then the host of the party dies before breakfast. Some party. Like an echo that reverberates louder and louder, Daniel chapter 5 is a striking blow to the glory of man, or at least the glory that man thinks of himself. Again and again in our scriptures, book after book, and, and here chapter after chapter, man proves himself to be very good at thinking much of himself. Given enough time, he comes down from the pit and thinks highly again of himself, maybe brought down, but then given enough time, man comes from the pit and thinks much of himself yet again. Though not the most famous story in this prophetic book, this may be the most damning, the most striking. Instead of insight into any particular character, this story hangs like a mirror where we see ourselves from time to time. 
Daniel 5 is a defining moment in this book where the true nature of a young Babylonian king, Belshazzar, and his gods are are exposed for who they truly are. For all their boasted glory and in spite of all their gold, Belshazzar and his gods will be found, the text says, wanting or exposed, empty when weighed in God's balance. The world's riches offer nothing. And for us, we see that there's nothing there that we should envy, even though these characters or these people try to put everything glorious on the table. This chapter, well, it instructs our hearts in two ways. It shows us that we as Christians have enough. No matter what we have or don't have, we have enough if Jesus is truly our Lord. In this chapter also, it gives hope to the broken, who in exile feel like the world will always be oppressive against them in war. Keep in mind that the readers of this chapter, the first hearers of this chapter, would have been those who feel consistently and constantly politically oppressed and physically oppressed and taken away from their home. They would have heard of this event and seen all of its demeaning of this main character, but it would have given them great courage and great hope that that their God does belittle and does bring low those who are not humble. The point of this chapter is the fearful God followers are comforted by the message that their sovereign God, our sovereign God, can bring down even the mightiest evil kingdom and give it to another. God again proves to the Israelites that no evil kingdom or no evil king can go beyond God's ultimate power and God's ultimate desire and control. Just a chapter before this, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. He took away his stature. He took away his wealth. He even took away his everyday shower until he learned that the Most High has sovereignty over kingdom, over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whomever he will. Now, Daniel 5 begins about 30 years after the close of chapter 4. But again, God will remind a proud king that he can bring low those who walk in pride. Our text shows uh, to us a young, spoiled king who doesn't really know what he's up against. Now, just to give you a small picture of Belshazzar as a king, he's written about as being the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, how he got to be the son of Nebuchadnezzar, this would be an ancestral type talk where, where someone who is far before me in my life might be talked about as my father. We might think of our country's founding fathers. They weren't really our fathers, but we think or speak about them as our fathers. Nebuchadnezzar died about 23 years before this chapter, and he was succeeded by his son. And his son lost power to his son-in-law or to his brother-in-law. And then that brother-in-law was assassinated and left the kingdom to his infant son. So you have a a father, a son, a brother-in-law who was assassinated, give it to his youngest son. But then historically, there was a priestly uprising in the kingdom. So father, son, brother-in-law, son, now priest. Well, the priest who would have been in charge didn't really want to be in charge of a kingdom. He wanted to give his attention towards religious things. So much like what we would see the Roman Catholic Pope today, he is technically in charge of an empire, but he devotes himself towards more religious activities rather than political ambition. And so this person, Nabonius, would have given his power over to Belshazzar. 
And Belshazzar was second in command. So later in the text where he would offer the third in command, he's not overstepping anyone, he would just say that he's giving this over to the next person in line. Now all of that to say, you had this conquering hero in chapter 4, who through a series of events, this young, spoiled, rotten kid winds up with the kingdom of Babylon. What we have here is a king who was given everything, accomplished really nothing historically, and in pure sin throws it all away and loses his kingdom in the meantime. And he didn't just throw it away at the world. You know, this isn't a story of the prodigal son who was given much from his father and then he just goes and wastes it with worldly pursuits. This is someone who actually gave all of his worldly empire away because he was conquered by God. He didn't throw himself at the world, but through participating with the world, he actually went to war with the one who holds all of the world together. So there are several things that you can see in this text. I want to bring three of them to the top. I want you to first see and be alarmed at this king's terrible party. I want you to be alarmed at this king's terrible party. We immediately enter the scene where the king is showing off. You can imagine him sitting at a table, glass in hand, with a crown that's probably tilted one way or the other, just to, just to show that he doesn't really care. He's the king, and everyone gets to serve him. All the flash and glorious glamour that would come along with a party that would be written about in history books after him would have been on full display. Food is everywhere. Drinks are overflowing. We, we know not only the size of the party, but also the tone of the party. It's talked about how Like a thousand people there, whether that's a literal or symbolic way to say a lot of people are there. But also the king would have been eating in the midst of all these people. So that tells us kind of the tone. Because in that time, a king would have separated himself with the party that he would have thrown. If you imagine me throwing a party with all of us in this room. But because I'm super special, I actually have a a special dinner aside with, with my wife and all of my best, best friends. You all are my best friends, but all of my best, best friends are over here. But we see that the king wanted to display all of his glory in front of all of his guests, so he had drinks and dinner with them. But watch the king act. Look at verse 2. It says, When he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of the God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. This chapter is actually all that you and I will see of Belshazzar. Now imagine if someone were to write or direct or film a one-act play of your life. Imagine what that play would be like. Imagine what you would want that play to be like. You know, when you go to a funeral, you hear about a lot of different events that happen in someone's life or how they either changed or grew or some of the circumstances that they lived through. But here, the one snapshot that we have of Belshazzar is that he was a drunk at a party. But not only a drunk at a party but that he was scandalous and that he took the very vessels that were there to display and help us worship the very glory of God, he took them out of the temple and drank out of them. I mean, think of the mockery that this guy is doing. It's one thing for Nebuchadnezzar to invade Jerusalem and take all of the precious things of the Lord. 
Imagine, imagine someone com- coming into your house, and maybe you have a copy of the Bible that's 150 years old. You know, your great-great-great-grandmother had it, and you keep it, and it's precious to you. And someone came and took that from you, but then they used it later to roll cigarettes. That'd be incredibly offensive, wouldn't it? And this is what this king is doing in the midst of God's people and all of God's enemies. The drama hovering over verses 2 and 3 is shocking. Seventy years since Daniel had been captured, verse 3 basically repeats verse 2. And this forces us to linger on the arrogance of the king. The, the writer of this text was deliberate in every word that he would have scribed. But here, he repeats it. And all of this was to praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Just 20 or 30 years after, Nebuchadnezzar would have praised the Lord because of the actions that the Lord took. His somewhat son-in-law, you could say, is using the very things that God called to worship him with. He's using him as a dinner plate and as a cup. Mighty men who walk in pride. God is able to humble. We see reverberating in the back of this text. Here, his carefully planned party, though, takes a terrible turn for him, doesn't it? At the very moment that he was calling things to be brought to him, everything changed. The one who had seemingly held God in his hand now sees, the text says, a strange set of fingers appear and write like you would draw with your own finger if it was a pen, words on a wall. The king saw the fingers of a human hand that wrote a message that he could not understand. It was almost like it was in a different language or or something that was not able for him to gather the meaning of. And at this point, the confidence of this king drained away faster than the wine he would have taken in. Look at verse 6. It says, the color of his face changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, his limbs gave way is literally translated, or it could be literally translated, the knots of his loins were loosened. What that means is he soiled himself. All of a sudden, this mighty, powerful king who was drinking left and right and eating left and right and throwing a party for a thousand of his friends sees something supernatural on the wall, and he's humiliated in front of all of his guests. Desperate to know the meaning of this text, he calls his wise men. Verse 7, it says, For whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. He was so desperate, maybe to get beyond what was happening here, but definitely to understand what was happening here. You'll remember just from chapters past that anytime a dream is displayed to a person, they viewed this as God communicating to them. They viewed this as a message that they not only would wake up and move on from, but it was a message that would have they should have received, held on to, and their lives should have been changed because of it. So there is a writing on the wall, this supernatural thing happening in front of the king's eyes. Everyone sees it, and he has to know what it is. But amazingly for us, almost with humor in our voice, we see that he calls the same wise men that Nebuchadnezzar would have called. The same men who again and again have no idea what is being told to them when God reveals certain things to a king. 
So as an aside, we very often see the Bible as maybe an archaic text or an old text. We, we see it as examples for how we should live, but not, not fully the true teaching of God for us. You look at this example of evil and frustration, and you might think this is old school. This is how God used to act. Third time, a king of Babylon turns to his wise men for answers when God's prophet is right in front of him. Man, again and again, turns to the wisdom of fools, and they wind up dry. Time and time again in our sin, we often turn to the world for answers. We turn to the world for wisdom. We turn to the world for wonderful insight, whether it be about your marriage or your relationships or your unmet physical desires. We, we ask advice in ways that has always proven to come up a little bit short. Instead of asking, what has the Lord said? What has the Lord brought to my attention? Friend, you should remember, almost written within a fury, the Apostle Paul goes to the great prestigious city of Corinth, seeing all of Corinth's glory, all of their buildings, all of their pillars like we still build like them today, known for their wisdom in their business dealings and in their politics. They were wise, wise people. And Paul almost mocking them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in our text, the very unwise person continually goes back to the wisdom of the world. When Belshazzar becomes destabilized by his sin, when the hand writes on the wall, he reaches for the same group of morons for answers, wondering if he'll wind up different. He's even offering them, think of this, he's offering them the kingdom. Meaning if he died that day, it's theirs. He's so desperate. And he's desperate in the wrong direction. Though only written in a few hymnals. I have five hymnals in my office and I could only find it in one. Is the hymn titled, None But Christ Can Satisfy. One of the phrases said, I tried the broken sisters, cisterns, Lord, but all the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed often going for things that we know are broken or outside of God's bounds. We often are amazed that it winds up dry or it winds up not teaching us or instructing us. So take serious instructive note from this point. When our sin causes us trouble and as your sin does not go without rippling consequences, reach for the Lord's guidance, friend. Reach for the Lord's guidance. The very Spirit of God has directed and inspired the writing of our scriptures. It's no mere words on a page, but the very Word of God Himself to us. And it's more instructive than any wise men. And the king faces this changed life where his body is shaken. His worldly wise men were worthless. And in verse 9, his alarm only grows deeper. The next scene begins with the queen entering the banquet hall to introduce Daniel and to rehearse the previous service. Leave it up to a mom to always remind a spoiled child of what they should have known already. The king need not be alarmed or pale. She reminded him that there is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods dwells, who had assisted Nebuchadnezzar 
this man's father with wisdom and understanding and insight. So she recommends him calling Daniel to give him an interpretation. And so this king does. But imagining this scene is not hard. I believe the author intends it to come across as more than amusing. This rotten or spoiled king now has to call at this point this old wise sage. So you can imagine Daniel marching into that palace, probably annoyed. He's probably having to do the same thing that he's done again and again. And no one seems to listen. Here we are going into a banquet that is anything other than proper, going into a feast that is anything other than full of debauchery, and this person is now asking him to tell him what something means on a wall. You can imagine Daniel walking in, maybe head back, standing tall, and he looks at the king, a man considerably younger than himself, certainly more unwise, but whose face is fallen, feet unsure, body shaken, and keep in mind, his joints had broken beneath his waist. This mature elderly man stands before a foolish, intoxicated boy. But the king still has the audacity to look at him and said, You're the Daniel, in verse 13 through 16. You're the Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Just trying to quickly remind him, You don't even belong here, but I'm going to listen to my mom for a second. You're one of the people who were taken out of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. Now the wise men could not show their interpretation of the matter, but I have heard you can, and if you can, you shall be clothed with a purple and gold, and it shall, you shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. This weak king is trying to mock Daniel. He comes across as a town drunk, probably wearing something similar to a Halloween costume in our own mind. Daniel might see him as only a pretender king. He's met a mighty king. He's seen what a mighty king has done. Just compare and contrast these two kings that Daniel would stand before. I think the original readers who would know the end of this story, it would know that Belshazzar is probably surrounded by enemy armies at this point, would have smiled at the irony of this text. Even in the midst of humiliation in front of his friends, he still has the audacity to look at Daniel and and mock him, to remind him, "You you don't belong here, but I'll listen to you. Apparently, you're good at reading stuff like this. So be aware, second, of the prophet's bold proclamation. Be aware of the prophet's bold proclamation. First, I wanted you to be aware of the king's terrible party, and it hasn't gotten much better yet, but be aware of what Daniel says when he starts talking. It was the prophet Jeremiah who would have sent letters to Daniel and the other, others in exile in Babylon, who wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Daniel here has the same view of the human heart and knows very well what this prophet would be talking about, about the sickness of man's own soul. Daniel here is called to confront Belshazzar, a pagan king about his state. And I love the way that aged Daniel begins his answers to the king. In verses 17 through 23, he embodies what we now know of Daniel. He embodies a bold and proud prophet who speaks the very words of the Lord and instructs people by the Lord's words. A a paraphrase of his remarks to the king where, you know, the king would have said, if you can interpret this dream, I'll give you gold, I'll robe you, and I'll even give you the third seat in the kingdom. Daniel might have responded in some like this. Keep your clothes. You won't even have a closet by the morning. Daniel's response omitted his usual politeness. 
But before he interpreted the mysterious writings of Belshazzar, Daniel first puts the the interpretation in its proper context. A context once again compared to that of Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. The context is highlighted by the structure of the opening sentence where Daniel begins to speak in verse 18. O king, the most high God, meaning the Lord, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. So already putting in context, Daniel is saying, remember who you are. Daniel is implying or suggesting that the Lord had given no similar sovereignty or glory to Belshazzar. And yet, even though Nebuchadnezzar had received from the Lord true greatness and majesty in worldly ways, with godlike powers to raise up and to humble, to kill and to keep alive, when Nebuchadnezzar became arrogant, the Lord humbled him and brought him down from his lofty speech. So as a first response, Daniel says to this king, But when his heart, being Nebuchadnezzar, became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was given away from people and given to the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign. He's basically giving Belshazzar a history lesson reminding Belshazzar of what happened in his own family, in his own kingdom, not that far removed. The point of Daniel's speech is clear. King Nebuchadnezzar had had something to be proud about, and yet the Lord even humbled him. Belshazzar, who certainly fell short of Nebuchadnezzar's achievements, should have learned from this experience and humbled himself as well. Instead, although Belshazzar knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he still aimed to exalt himself not just above everyone else, but against the very Lord, his God. He had still exalted himself. He was sacrilegious and profane. Holy vessels from Jerusalem used for his idolatrous acts of worship and praise. He had praised idols, all of them, wood, silver, on and on. Holy vessels were used to mock and neglected the one true God who gave him every breath. And so Daniel brought this charge against him. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Twice, Daniel says, and you, and other times says, and your. These are strong words and important ones for us to hear. This direct speech going at Belshazzar is one that should have cut and pierced at his own soul. And it should cut and pierce our own souls too. Basically, are we taking? Is Belshazzar taking? Are people in the audience taking? Do you take your religious sphere for granted? Just thinking that you inherit glory because you're around it or maybe related to it. Just thinking that God will be merciful or kind to you because you go to something or are a part of something or know certain people. If we ever act as he did, 
raising our own idolatrous glasses to the heavens, thinking we own the world or at least own our own lives, we too are in danger of this very same pride before God. If you and I ever think that we can hold God in our hands, aim to control the the seasons of life or the days in our midst, we we are standing on the very threshold of judgment. And each of us often does this, don't we? It's not just that we place our trust into things around us, but we, we try to control everything in our life. It's the nature of the human heart. Like I said last week, the answer to every question or the answer to every downfall is pride. And here we see someone far removed succumbing to the same thing. And this text acts like a mirror where it shows us in different ways, in many ways, where we recognize that we are holding on to stuff. We're holding on to relationships or we're holding on to circumstances in the same way that Belshazzar would have been holding on to that cup. In Romans chapter 1 verses 21, it says that we are a part of the human race that did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. We became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Each one of us has not honored God as God, but traded him for what could be considered as a wine of our own making. We have exchanged the most high for the delights that are lesser, whether that be money or prestige or time or pride, either banking everything on what you can become or even banking everything on what your children might be. We have exchanged the most high for the delights of the lesser. As a result, we are subject to the very same sins that Belshazzar suffers. We're found wanting and without God's sovereign mercy, left to drink from his cup of wrath. Friend, this is the very answer that the gospel gives to people who are sinful, that we all find ourselves sinful. We all have one thing in common. We're we're naturally separate from the glory and the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. But in the Lord's kindness, he actually comes to you in your very lowness. And doesn't lift you up because you are good or doesn't lift you up because you have potential. But actually, in your lowness, he places his son there. And instead of pouring out his wrath on you because of what your sins deserve, he he there pours out his wrath on his own son. And by doing this, he raised his son from death and he promises to raise you from death after you die. But in the meantime, as he sees you in that low spot, he actually redeems you. He saves you. This is what the Bible talks about when it says that we are justified. It says that when Jesus or when God sees us, he sees us in the very same way that he sees his son. And God the Father loves his son. He does everything for the glory and exaltation of his son. And so you and I, though we walk into a banquet feast, not deserving to be there, what God does is he opens up a seat at the table and he shares his food with us. He gives of himself to us and he treats us not as people who are far off like those who are in Judah or those who are in Enid, but those who are sons and daughters of his own son's banquet. If you don't believe in that gospel, I just want to encourage you to believe in that gospel, to recognize where your sin places you and where God's glory and his goodness and his mercy brings you. Friend, don't have faith and that you can crawl out of that hole because you can't. You are just like Belshazzar. You're just like Nebuchadnezzar. You're just like Adam and Eve. We place ourselves in the pit 
And we might turn to wise men all around us and say, how do I get out? And guess what? They're in the pit too. They don't know. But place your trust in Jesus, the one who rescues you from the pit by giving over of his son. And you'll be delivered with or given eternal life and delivered from all of sin and despair. What should be counted to you when you place your trust in Jesus will never be counted against you because it's already been placed on Jesus, first of all. So Belshazzar has been shown by the writing on the wall to have been weighed by God and found wanting. Belshazzar had been shown by the writing on the wall that he will be judged and he desperately needs to be saved. Weights and measures have been used as symbols representing justice, not just in that time, but in our own day. Today, if you go to court, maybe as a lawyer or maybe as a criminal, you will see Lady Justice carrying scales of justice in one hand and a sword in another, and her eyes are closed. The blindfold symbolizing her integrity and impartiality, and Jan- Daniel's interpretation of the writing on the wall uses this f- familiar image of weights and scales. The hand that wrote the words is sent from God, and it says in verse 25, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mean, mean, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mean, meaning God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, and you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What Daniel is interpreting for this king when Belshazzar and his unrighteous kingdom are put on the divine scales of God's justice, they are counted, counted again, found wanting, and then divided. The king who thought he had controlled God with his own hand now falls under the hand of God himself. He had lifted, instead of lifting up his heart, it is being brought down low. Rather than walking before the true sovereign, Daniel tells him that God's judgment not only will come for him, but is coming. And so third, be alarmed of the kingdom's sudden plummet. Be alarmed of the kingdom's sudden plummet. We see this in verses 29 through 31. Just briefly, in verse 29 to 30, describe the events clearly. That very night, Babylon fell. Now just just imagine, an hour before this, It would have been the greatest party in the world. And then, boom, the kingdom falls in an instant. Belshazzar was killed. Darius the Mede came to power in verse 31. And the judgment, the writing on the wall announced, was not long coming, but was very present in their minds. Though true to his word, Belshazzar, before he had fallen, gave Daniel the rewards of his insight. You got to know that Daniel would just be letting him crown him and letting him robe him up and just be like, this is, so, this is so dumb. Like, you have no idea what's happening outside of the city walls. But it wouldn't really matter. Belshazzar's sins had found him out. The author does not say who killed him, but it's understood that God allowed him to be brought down. And the biblical record is not alone in recounting this for us to understand. Herodias, the, the ancient Greek historian of the 5th century, confirms how a battle was won overnight. He tells of a night of partying. This is over in ancient Greece. Tells of a night of partying, a celebration, just as Daniel records for us. The the historian writes that the victory was won that night. 
The Medo-Persian army, he says, diverted water from the Euphrates River, which ran under the walls and into Babylon, into a marsh, so that the soldiers could navigate their way not only towards the kingdom's tower, but also under the wall that would allow them there. So shower, shallow water down there reverberated under the king's walls and into the city. And there they would enter the palace. They would find King Belshazzar, and they would kill him in an instant. The name Belshazzar means, O Bel, protect the king. Bel is the name of the highest Babylonian god, Marduk. Belshazzar, O Bel, protect the king. But the highest Babylonian god could not protect the king from the anger of Israel's god. Nebuchadnezzar said that the king of heaven is able to bring low those who walk in pride. And his offspring would prove this. But this would be a final step. Because Belshazzar was the last Babylonian king. The prophecy that we have in Daniel 2, where the crown of gold would go to the breast of silver, now has itself in full effect. As Nebuchadnezzar had learned, now Belshazzar learned that the Most High God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and sets it over whomever he will. Friend, this plummet of an awful king should be the message of comfort of Israelites that would hear about this in the coming days or in the coming years. And for us, this should be a great testimony to God's power and God's goodness, but also it should serve as a mighty warning to us. The Lord brings low those who think they are high. And the Lord won't just bring them low, but he will end their life. When we think of sin, it's this serious. When we think of overcoming sin or fighting through sin, whether that be you neglecting your wife or whether that be you addicted to pornography, God will bring those who think they were high very, very low. For Belshazzar and his hardened heart, the game was over. The writing had been on the wall. But it's not so for us. As the curtain falls on Babylon, it does so with a lesson for each of us. We're to walk in humility, to honor God with all of our steps, to worship him as he's called us to worship them. Who among us can read this chapter and not be warned again of the pride of the heart? As Jeremiah foretold, the heart is deceptive above all things. And may we be kept from Belshazzar's sins like on that faithful night. So to conclude, take note of the central themes of this very precious chapter. Maybe the main theme that we see in verse 21, the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. As the story of the Bible unfolds, it becomes obvious that the person God the Father has truly set over the world is his own son, Jesus of Nazareth. The crown that Jesus would wear in mockery from the people who would give it to him, this crown of thorns, Keep in mind that that is the very Son of God who rules and reigns over everything. The one in whom all things were created and who they are created for. And wonderfully, rather than drinking the cup of worldly glory, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for his people. That he might offer us a place with him. The scriptures describe what awaits those who humble themselves before the Lord. An eternal banquet in this new kingdom. So why the world and others will try to again and again make ourselves king of our own empire, king of the world. Who hasn't stood on the front of a ship or at the edge of a pool and said, I'm the king of the world? 
But remember who the real king is. Friend, have you repented of lifting up your heart against him? Have you turned completely from your sin? Saw yourself as not the king of the world, actually a slave to the world. And what God is calling you to do is to flee from that and to cling to him as the true and good father. So repent and believe the good news. Don't fall to the wayside of judgment that Nebuchadnezzar did or Belshazzar did. And ask him to fill your heart with him. For those of us who have our eyes opened by God's grace to see the emptiness of what plays out in this story, this story should act as another reminder of the depth of God's mercy. Why should I have been chosen as a recipient of his grace? What did I bring to this banquet table? There is nothing in us that makes us worthy of such a great inheritance. Yet there was everything precious and good about Jesus being offered for us. Growing up in this church doesn't make you worthy. Having particular parents or children doesn't make you worthy. Going to the right camp or the right school won't make you worthy. The only explanation of God's particular desiring sovereign mercy is that he chose us in spite of our stubborn pride and self-centeredness for his own glory. And by doing this, he opens our eyes like we were once blind, but opens our eyes to where we see the depth of our lostness, but also the beauty of his glory. And we cling to it like an oasis in the desert because it fills us and nourishes us. It's a cup that will never go empty. It is a plate on a table that will never run dry. We're reminded of what we sing about so loudly. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Compare and contrast Belshazzar to Jesus. Jesus had none of the outward glitz or glitter that Belshazzar had. He virtually had no possessions and relatively few followers. He couldn't gather a thousand to come and feast with him. He had to go by a hill and feed them for them to even be there. And as a man, he had no outward beauty or majesty to commend him appearing on earth as a humble carpenter, not as a mighty emperor. Jesus never had the resources to throw a star-studded party, at least not in this world. His kingdom is not of this world, though he submitted himself to the ways of this world. And when his life was weighed in the balance of God's arms, he was found perfect and complete and able to satisfy and fully bring on the glory that he is, not just for himself, but for all those who come to him. So if you want to come to Jesus, if you want to call him, recognize that he is summoning you, he is calling you, he is bringing you to himself, but not just far away bringing you, but also as an inheritor of his total glory. In heaven, his great banquet awaits his bride. And on that day, in place of Belshazzar's nobles, there will be thousands upon thousands of Christ's saints in attendance and all those who wear robes that were washed by his own blood making them clean, and having a seat at the table. God's eternal rule has been established, and his kingdom will not be divided and given over to the enemies. His kingdom is already existing, and it's formed of the people who are made one in Christ. So rather than fixing our eyes on the gods of this world, Christian, remain steadfast in fixing your eyes on the one who is able to bring you near, to overcome evil and to overcome sin, the one who could overcome those who think they're high. They are brought very low. 
Look onward and upward to the true banquet to which Christ Jesus invites you. A feast that can be entered only by faith by those who are clothed in the garments that God provides. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his promise from shore to shore. How he loves us, ever loves us. Changes never, nevermore. Let's pray.